I'm Ann Police. And I'm Denise Cooper. And you're listening to Two, Two Average, Average Girls. Girls. Joining us today, we're so happy to welcome in Gary Lawrence. Hi, Gary. Hi, how are you? Um, well, thank you. We're so glad to have you on Two Average Girls on Tag Tuesday. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Uh, let me just briefly introduce Gary to you before we get started um, talking. He's such an accomplished individual that um, the resume goes on a little probably longer than the interview would so I'm gonna I'm just gonna <laughs> shorten it and and kind of give some highlights um, first of all Gary uh, received a PhD in public affairs communications from Stanford University as long as you've known Gary you've never called him doctor I know <laughs> I mean when I heard you were a doctor which was like five minutes ago <laughs> I was like wait should I have like been like I don't know Dr. Lawrence, how are you? I, I don't go by that at all. I went for a graduate degree for the knowledge that I could get and the skills they could teach me, not so I could put a bunch of initials after my name. Well, so that's, not, found, that's it, not tradition for most people. I know, <laughs> but it, it's found on my resume when I make a formal presentation. It's listed in my resume. But if somebody says, uh, dresses me as Dr. Lawrence, I look around for somebody else in the room I might be related to. <laughs> well, Gary Lawrence is a, is a, has a PhD, so we can call you doctor or not, whatever. Um, Gary also runs a polling company called Lawrence Research. He is a professional focus group moderator. He's also the author of four books, but most famously, he's a former rock and roll DJ. That's right. Welcome, Gary. <laughs> we're so glad to have you on the podcast, Gary. We're, we're so happy to have you here. You have you are infamous in our circle of uh, being such a great storyteller and having had some really peak experiences in your life. And we're just hoping to get a little bit, a little taste of that today. Good. Let's go back a little bit, Gary. The first time I really heard your name uh, was in regards to being Reagan's pollster. Now, what? First of all, what does a pollster do? Well, let me correct it. Oh, I okay. was I was a vice president of the company that did all of Ronald Reagan's research. My boss, Richard Worthlin, was technically Reagan's pollster. I mean, that's uh, belong that title belongs to him. Okay. I was one of several people who sat in the back room with all the computer printout and tried to figure out what people were thinking. What did you figure out? Like, give, give us an example of what what the work well, of a pollster. Yeah. Is. What is what is a pollster? Okay, let me let me back up a little bit and tell you how I got into the sure, yeah, yeah. situation. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, you have to be fascinated with how people think. No, well, we are. And you are, so <laughs> you, you already qualify as pre-pollster. Oh, good. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, I can get a doctorate while I get a PhD behind my name for this. There, yeah. Why not? Why not? But I served a mission for my church. I'm a Latter Day Saint in Germany at a time when we were at the height of the Cold War. And the Berlin Wall had gone up, the October Missile Crisis in uh, 1962 was going on, and I was driving down the freeway with some other missionaries, and you know in Germany there are no speed limits. That's why and I want to go there. I saw this big black Mercedes just, just hauling, about coming up by my side, and as it flashed past, I saw two things. The curtains were drawn, and it had diplomatic license plates. Something was really going on, intrigue and everything, and say, I want to be one of them there guys, you know, and I, so I went, after my mission, went back to BYU and took a double major in uh, international relations and political science and a double minor in German and Russian, because wow. I was going to emphasize Eastern Bloc countries. I wanted to be in the foreign service there. So you were an underachiever at the beginning. I was an underachiever. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked my professors as I went along, I said, I know I would need a graduate degree to have a better inside track to move up in, in the ranks in the foreign service. What is the best graduate school for the foreign service? And they all said it's the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy in Boston, co-administered by Tufts and Harvard. Oh. And I said, okay, that's where I want to go. So I put all my effort into that. Letters of recommendations, everything, everything. I believe the man upstairs guides things in all of our lives. And so it was with me when my uh, best buddy since the third grade, and he was so very much aware of my trying to get into Fletcher's, said, well, what if Fletcher's doesn't want you? You better oh. have a plan B. 
<clears throat> those words changed my life. And I thought that's good advice. So I went over to the political science department. I started pulling down the catalogs of different universities, checking their graduates' uh, programs. And I would open it up to P's for political science or I's for international relations. Princeton, Yale, Harvard, looking at all of them. And I pulled down Stanford's and I flipped it open and it came to the C's, communication. And I thought, oh, well, I like communication. What's this about? And I saw on that page the word political science, economics, statistics, psychology, business, marketing. I said, what is going on? So at semester break, I hopped into my little red Volkswagen and I drove 800 miles to Stanford and I checked it out and I became hooked. Um, on the campus? On, uh, no, on, on, on just the, the whole process of what they did because the professor I uh, talked to, he says, you gotta understand something about a PhD program. Most PhD programs, you learn more and more about less and less. Yeah. Oh wow, that's <laughs> a great and, advice. But because communication is the glue of society, we teach you to learn more and more about more and more. Nice. And I like that breadth. And specifically, it was focused on how do people think and how do their thoughts, their attitudes drive what they do, their actions. Everybody is in a persuasion business of some sort. And I'm in the strategy business by taking an, uh, polls and doing focus groups and figuring out how people think. I can then advise my clients, here's a strategy, here's some possible advertising, you may want to do this, you may not want to do that. And so, but we're all in the persuasion business of some sort. You raise children, second grade, <laughs> you're persuading them, right from the beginning, right? Okay. And it doesn't quit yeah. when you're a grandma or a grandpa. No, it does it not. You just keep on doing it. But anyway, when it got down to it, Fletcher's offered me a full four-year ride. <laughs> I had to make a commitment to teach for four years thereafter before going in the Foreign Service, but they totally paid for. Stanford says, come on down for one year, we'll take a look at you, we'll pay half your tuition. Oh, no. And something <laughs> said, take Stanford. Really? Yes, and I went there, and the first day, we're, st we're, there were, we're sitting around a, a conference room table, and the chairman of the department says, we usually take 12 people into this program each year and try to nurse them, nurture them all the way to a PhD. Not all the time do they make it, so we decided let's double it, we'll take 24 of you in this year, and we'll see how you do, and we'll allow 12 to go on to the PhD, and the other 12, you'll get a master's degree for your trouble. Oh. Now let's introduce ourselves. Oh, <laughs> so I went around the room, and here's Sandman from Princeton, and Jones from Yale, and uh, Reuben from NYU, <laughs> and Collins from Vanderbilt, all these named schools, and it came to me, I'm Gary Lawrence, political science, Brigham Young University. 23 people immediately thought, well, there's one hick I can beat. Now, who are the other 11? <laughs> but I fooled them. I wasn't the smartest, but nobody outworked me. Nobody outworked me. And so I was one of the 12, and then went on to do that. Now, yes, I, I enjoyed, I got a PhD for what I could learn more than what I could flaunt. I, I hate this intellectual embroidery that so many intellectuals, you know, said, look at me, look at me, I'm a PhD, not, I don't do that. Look at me if I can be of help to you in understanding your population, understanding your voters, understanding your market with what you're trying to accomplish. But in addition to everything, the main thing that came out of that, I married my roommate's sister. Oh. <laughs> Come on. She's going to so start crying, sweet. I'm afraid. <laughs> I am. That's so sweet. You met, you met, your, you met Jan at Stanford. Her brother and I were part of it. There were seven of us who went in together and leased a big old grandma house, and we were batching it together while, while doing our studies. And Steve said he had a cute little sister, and I said, I, I'll have to see a picture. <laughs> <laughs> I won't just take your word for well, it. So he showed me a picture, and 15 months later, I married her. She's beautiful. Yeah. She's smart. smart. She's got it all. And so what more could you yeah, want? Yeah. And she got her bachelor's and master's degree total within four years. Oh, so she's just really, really smart. I'm very proud of her. And I count myself very, very lucky.
So I think when you talk about that you were directed and the man upstairs directed you for that, it wasn't just about your education, obviously. Right. You needed to be there. That's right. Exactly. And so... um, So your plan B was really... Plan, that's when my buddy said, you better have a plan B. Those words changed my life. Now, while I was there in the first year, um, a a professor friend from BYU had subsequently uh, changed schools and he was teaching at San Francisco State. And uh, Richard Wertham, who was an econ professor at BYU, was taking a sabbatical and he was in Arizona and he had formed a polling company, a public opinion research company. He had a client running for Congress in the Bay Area. He called my professor friend, Kirk Hart, and said, do you know somebody in the Bay Area who could help me with a survey? And he put him in touch with me. I uh, started off. And in those days, we were knocking on doors. Oh. Yes. It what was the what dates were those? What year is this? That would be Probably. 1968. Wow. So you're going 19- door to door uh-huh. and talking to whoever's talking home. Talking to people. And it was interesting. The polling, the polling industry was very different then than it is today. Many times, you know, I'd knock on the door and, and organize others to do so, you know, get a field force out there working, uh, administering these interviews. And people would say, is this like the Gallup poll? Oh. And I say, yes, it's it exactly like that. Well, I've been waiting for somebody to ask me my opinion. Come on in. Oh, really? Well, that doesn't happen today. There are no. too many people making phone calls saying, I need a little of your time. But the, at that time, we, we could you know, do... Actually, go door to door, and people wouldn't be afraid. Correct. People would be open. Most of them, or many of them, sufficiently that you could get a good sample. Now... So I did that, and then uh, Dick uh, Wortland said, I need you to go here, or need to go to Hawaii. It was one of my first places where I went to do uh, uh, surveys. And we'd been doing that for about six months, and Dick got a phone call one day and said, there's a, uh, a man who has heard about you and would like to talk to you about being his pollster. And Dick says, well, who is it? He says, I can't tell you, but be at such and such a hotel in Los Angeles next Thursday at two o'clock. Yes. So he walked into that room and there's Ronald Reagan. So we ended up, the, the company was called Decision Making Information, DMI, and uh, we ended up being Reagan's pollsters. Was and it was a delightful thing. And I stayed with uh, Dick and his company and had some great experiences until I started my own company in 1987. So this was before Reagan's... He was uh, governor? Was he governor or was it before he, was, he ran for governor? He was, uh, he was governor because he had won that in 1966. Mm-hmm. And so we helped him with uh, his gubernatorial run in 1970 and then his, uh, his effort in 1976 when uh, he was running against Gerald Ford for the nomination. Ford won, and so Ford faced Jimmy Carter in 76. Jimmy Carter won. We came back in 1980 when uh, uh, Reagan beat Carter, and then again in 84 when Reagan beat Mondale. So uh, three presidential campaigns and one gubernatorial campaigns, and my very first focus group I ever conducted was for Governor Reagan. I mean, I've since conducted about 1,500, 1,600 focus groups. Wow. wow. So you, you were both terms with Reagan. You, you worked with Worthland's group yeah, through I, both of Reagan's presidential terms. Yeah, we were, we were his polling team. Mm-hmm. Now, I can't take credit. I, I've met him twice. Is that it? He wouldn't know me. Oh, really? Okay. And like I said, I was the guy in the back room with a couple of other buddies when we were looking over the computer printout. With a PhD, just looking over the data. <laughs> yeah, looking over the data, figuring out what to do about it. And it really all boils down to this core part of, um, of decisions. Now, let me explain a little bit, if I could, on that. In polling, I like to look at people's... Uh, um, mind and analyze yourself. You look at the mind as if it's a mental ocean. At the top of this mental ocean, you have currents that are affected by whichever way the wind's blowing, whatever's going on. Opinions change daily. Underneath the opinions would be what we call attitudes. They're stronger currents, 
less uh, influenced by opinions, starting more influenced by other things. And by other things, I mean the deepest, strongest currents in our mental ocean would be values. Mm-hmm. And values are the sum total of people's hopes, their needs, their beliefs, and their fears. You tell me somebody's hopes and needs and beliefs and their fears, and I can figure out, hey, this might be the way to approach this individual. Maybe you might sell your product best if you emphasize X. Maybe it's they have a fear for safety. Well, then fine, you say show how your product will help enhance their safety, whatever it might be. And of all of those things, the one of the things, those things of, of the four would be fear. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are driven by fear. We, are, we would like to be driven by hopes and needs and beliefs, but fears play a big re- And it's part of mortality. It's part of the earth life on here. And so in this whole process, you try to figure out how people are thinking. Let me tell you a quick story. <coughs> you, I have uh, one of my roommates, and he's brilliant, and went on to become a, a professor at, uh, at Rutgers University in material science. And he was an expert with aluminum oxide. Wow. And we That's got kicking specific. around. You know, all of my roommates were in the hard sciences. Mm. And then there was me in the social sciences. But we had, we had great conversations. And one time I said, Roger, you're an expert on aluminum oxide. How many variables do you have to control before you can predict what aluminum oxide is going to do? And he says, three. You control the temper, temperature, the pressure, and how much time, then you can, we can predict what aluminum oxide is going to do. What's the reaction? And I said, that's really fascinating. Do you know how many variables it takes in <laughs> studying the human mind yes. before we can predict? He said, it's innumerable. Yeah. And just when you think, okay, we, we know seven, eight, nine, ten variables here that are going this way, we can predict that this person's going to vote this way. You're going to be fooled. Here's an example. It's 1980. We're doing Reagan's polling. And one of our uh, interviewers comes in one morning and says, i got to tell you what happened last night. I was interviewing a lady, and we started through the interview, and uh, your opinion of Ronald Reagan, strongly approve. Your opinion of Jimmy Carter, strongly disapprove. On every trait, on every adjective, the positive adjectives were Reagan, the negative adjectives were Carter's. On every issue, she backed up Reagan 100%. Got all the way down to the end when we asked them if the election were held today, who would you vote for? And she said, I'd vote for Jimmy Carter. What? Yes. Why? Everything what? else pointed to Reagan as the one she would vote for. Well, the interviewer did the right thing. You stepped through the demographics, age, education, etc. And when you finished up, she says, I'd like to go back to your vote. Are you sure that you're going to vote for Jimmy Carter? She says, yes, but all the way along the line, you are so pro-Reagan and anti-Carter, why are you voting for Carter? And this is what she said, true story. Well, everyone knows that every president who has been elected in the year that ends with zero dies in office, and I love Ronald Reagan too much to see him die in office. No, no, (laughs) it's so upsetting. That's a variable you would never, how could you ever conceive of that? That's right. It's it's impossible. It's that's impossible. not even in part of the equation. But that's what makes public opinion research so fascinating. That is fascinating. And it's just interesting at all to get to, to let people tell their story. You don't probe into private matters. You ask them questions and then you analyze what they what they're thinking about. We're the most fascinating creature <laughs> creatures <laughs> creations on the face of the earth. It's the does. most unpredictable. But yeah. I. I I truly believe, and I think our listeners will also understand when you talk about fear. You're talking about fear and the 80s. Was it the Russians? Was that really one thing that people feared? Was it Cold War status? What was it? Right? You, you, you fear at all different levels. There's an international fear in the politics, there are economic fears, there are career fears, everything else. In, uh, in uh, the 1980s, the Cold War at its height, and um, 
there was a uh, was it August of eighty one that seemed to be there might have been triggered a nuclear war just some misunderstandings and so on, and and so that was very much uh, a part of it. And the other side wanted to uh, portray Reagan as this trigger happy cowboy, and so what do we do? We do a reassurance. You reinforce, and why it's you have to be strong to defend the things that you treasure not to be strong to say hey look at me I've got you know umpteen tanks and umpteen missiles and so on no and so we turn that from being a fear of Ronald Reagan trigger happy cowboy which is what they try to pawn off on people to let's protect our way of life let's protect America for our children for our grandchildren we do not initiate actions, but we're not going to be a bunch of Neville Chamberlains and a who will just walk away from things. Right. Has there been a time in all of this time you've done surveys and, and polling, has there been a time where you have gotten an answer that you did not expect? Like this is the op this came out the opposite of what I thought it was going to be. <clears throat> In terms of any individual's answers, yes, we always sure. get something unexpected. As a whole. Yes. And um, in terms of when you're down to a point where it's 50-50 or 51-49, that kind of a thing, uh, yes, then it, things boil down to turnout. Oh. Mm -hmm. How many people are going to turn out? Now we try to get, we try to measure people and assign them a, a particular, depending on their answers, you know, what is, is a high probability turnout voter, low probability turnout voter, and so on. When we're talking about the presidential race, when Trump and Clinton were racing, and I mean, I went to bed and I knew that Clinton was our new president. I knew she was going to be the new president. I mean, she knew she was going to be the new president based on all the polling that told everybody that it was going to be a landslide, right? I mean, she had already signed all of her Time Magazine covers. She was she had rented the biggest room that she could get in New York or wherever she was. I woke up and I was I thought it was I thought it was a joke. I couldn't believe that he won. Mm -hmm. How did that happen when the polling told us that can't be? Well, the polling really there was another element in there. You have to go back and look at the data, all the different polls, compare them to the previous uh, presidential races and the polls, and the big thing that stands out w was a higher undecided. Mm. And so what did that mean? It meant because there was so much garbage being thrown at Trump, there were a lot of people who wanted to vote for him, but they weren't willing to tell the pollsters that they were going to vote for him. So, you, well, I'm undecided. You know, that's the easy way out because the media, Hollywood, all, everything was just floating that, you know, Hillary's going to be the president and Trump doesn't deserve it. He's, what has he done? He's never held office. He's a wimp and he's egotistic. Well, and not a wimp, but he is egotistical. <laughs> <laughs> he's everything that everyone says he is, probably. And so the polls weren't uh, didn't take into account the low the high and undecided vote and I I didn't do any particular studies myself on the presidential race that year but I predict that if you went into the data and, and you dig down into that data you'd find overwhelmingly that the undecided voters in 2016 went for Trump but the pollster didn't know about it. You think because people were afraid to tell the truth? <clears throat> they didn't. They weren't really undecided in their own mind. That's right. So. I know for a fact that I would not, if someone called me on the phone and asked me, I would hang up on him. Mm -hmm. I, won't, I don't even answer my phone anymore. And, that's, and, that, and that I should add to it. Um, the sampling was off. Of course, we always have tr trouble for making sure you get the the right sample, and and so not only did the people who uh, too many people who answered the questionnaire answer the pollsters were undecided. That was a higher number. But how many people refused to even be polled? Yeah, that's true. And that's that's where if you are in favor of Hillary 
and uh, the media is reinforcing you, then you're proud of that. If you're in favor of Trump, you'd like to vote for him, and you end up voting for him, and the pollster starts asking you questions about it, you don't want, you just, I'm just, I'm, I'm not politically correct here, so I'm not even going to answer your poll. Right. Did you, were you surprised when you got up and saw that, that Trump had won? Just or did you, you even go to sleep? I didn't go to sleep. But I, did, <laughs> I knew you I, didn't. <laughs> I, I, I was taking a walk around the neighborhood. neighborhood, and I went back, and they said, Trump's going to win. Yes, I was surprised. Were you surprised? I was surprised. Okay, because you were looking at the polls not, under, not knowing that the undecided was so high? or uh, I noticed that the undecideds were high, but I didn't have my own data. Okay. And there are certain kinds of questions that I like to use that are, are, are indicators. And I, and for example, I use a lot of split samples. What so does that mean exactly? That means this. Uh, you, let's say I, I have a statement. Um, and I want to people to say either strongly agree, somewhat agree, somewhat disagree, or strongly disagree. It's, a, it's get a feel of how much they are, they've, they've agree or disagree and how intensely they do that. So I could put in there um, a certain statement and half of the sample will hear that statement and the other half of the sample will hear that statement plus one other phrase. Oh, okay. So then they are, so I know that the difference between those two uh, sets of people has to depend on that particular phrase. Let me give you another example. Let's say we're dealing with uh, um, a person, uh, two people running for office, and you say, okay, Jones is this old, he did this, he did this, he did this, he graduated from uh, Cal Berkeley. <laughs> You're coming from Stanford, so you wanted to throw that one in. <laughs> But I don't, let's say the half of the sample hears everything except their educational background. The other half of the sample hears the exact same descriptions, plus one went to Berkeley and one went to Stanford. Guess what? Mm -hmm. The difference is going to be attributed to that school. That's true. Or it could be attributed to his occupation, or he, you can make a change on his position on, on, on Russia or on Afghanistan right. or anything else. So I used a lot of split samples. I use a lot of Smith-Jones, Smith says this, Jones says this, which way does, would you agree or disagree? I use a lot of push questions. What's a push question? A push is, you find out position, on somebody's position, and they say, if you were to find out X, then what would your vote be? If your neighbor said X, Y, then how would you vote? So I try to push them to see how movable are they off of their stated vote. Like mm. what's gonna tip them? Like what kind of information from the neighbor would tip them one way or the other? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> and it may be something they'd already considered, in which case you're not gonna find too much movement, or it'll be something, well, if that's the case, or, you know, then I'll change my vote. So in other words, how, f how fluid is that vote? Right. How firm or how fluid is it? Yes, how mm -hmm. firm or how fluid. And you get that by pushing them with a new piece of information. If you were to find out that the FBI did a dun -dun 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 on him and found X, Y, Z, I mean, it can't be you know, too huge. It just has to be enough to, to test how flexible they are or how fluid they are. Is it true? The, your bit of information that you're using for the survey? It must be true. It I do not put a lie in front of people. Okay. How much is, I'm thinking of the Clinton era, how much are morals, do they play into people changing their mind? How much are morals? Well, I mean, we're looking at Bill Clinton and his whole impeachment and the scandal behind the impeachment was that he was having an affair with, a, with an intern. Were people swayed by that? Do, does morality play into who you're going to vote for, have you seen? Morality definitely plays a role, not necessarily in the direction that we might want. Really? Yes. Yes, this is the part where we say, oh, humanity, 
Oh, I can't God. believe it. <laughs> I <Yeah>. can't. <laughs> Go on. Let's I, let's say that uh, you're talking about um, uh, somebody having an affair. Yeah. And there are other people, there are certain people who will say, that's no big deal. Everybody does it. And other people say, mm, that's not right. And they will make a judgment on that. Now, what we're finding is more and more division because of those kinds of things. And let me go back to the segment in the questionnaire that I have would be a series of statements and I get a four-part agree, disagree. For years and years, it formed this bell-shaped curve. More and more, you know, a bell-shaped mm -hmm. curve. There are fewer and fewer people in the two ends of the extremes, more people are in the middle. In, the, in recent years, I'm measuring more U-shaped curves. Going the, the other way. Yes, in other words, more and more people are, are gravitating towards one extreme or the other. We are becoming more divided as a nation. Our, our attitudes towards things, more divided. You, you show me where these these moral situations are have a role and it's split i would never have predicted how many people would be defensive in supporting gender fluidity being taught in schools interesting okay so morality is there and so you get people you got parents who oppose it you have teachers who you know, want to teach, you know, to be with it and be woke and, you know, and so on. Um, we wouldn't have seen things like the 1619 Project. You know, when did America start? 1776 or 1619 when the first slaves came here? In other words, the things are just gravitating and it's more and more and more divisive, more polarized. Where did we start? as a society to blur the lines between and become so pol polarized based on this kind of thing? There are s several schools of thought on that. You can go back to, were any of our founding fathers ever unfaithful to any of their wives? And there, yeah, there were, and this would come out. But what was the overall tenor of the time? It was one of That's not good. Yeah, not good. And then you, you get down to where you have, um, um, John F. Kennedy, and right. he was a sleep-around guy, and uh, uh, LBJ, uh, I wouldn't say Nixon so much, I wouldn't say Carter so much, Reagan, no, but you know he was married twice, and maybe there was an affair in there, but I'm not sure. But then you get Clinton, and then take a look at 2016. Right. You got Trump, who right. is absolutely immoral on that point. Right. Absolutely. Right. So why did he win? Exactly. It's because of fear of other things. Mm, comes back to the fear. So those, the things that maybe were ones more important start going further down the list based yeah. on our fear or, or what we deem as what's really important is not how our president is behaving. It's like a hierarchy. Uh, you know, in his private life, yeah. yeah. And, and people would attribute a lot of it to, well, that's what people in power do. Yes. <laughs> and so they've excused it. And then there's the other segment that um, is very strong on morality, and they have their suspicion about the Clintons, plural. Yeah. And so they make their decision on other things that for that particular election. The, the younger voters are st still trying to find, nail down their values, those four elements. They're trying to nail down the values and then build a foundation on those values, whatever they are. And they, and they tend to shift to more towards the conservative side over time towards the more religious side over time. Maybe it's because they're getting closer to know it's time to, you know, the, the man upstairs might call me Make home. maker. Yeah, but it's very much a factor in there. Again, it's all, it, to what extent does, uh, do the, does a religious position influence the vote? And that's always, that's what makes it fun to be a pollster. Yeah. yeah. Do you find, we've talked about the evolution somewhat of 
poll taking and what it means. Do you believe that there is still space and a place for this type of thing? Because how do you go about it now if people won't talk to you on the phone? Like, what does it look like? What what does it look like for a pollster these days? That's a very good question. And we're still trying to figure it out. We use, um, we still use a telephone (laughs) and we make calls, random digit calls. Um, We tend to get more of the older voter with traditional telephone calls. You have cell phones where you get more of a spread and it centers on the, I would say the 30 to 60 year olds. And you have online where we actually recruit people to take a poll and some and more and more pollsters are giving out you know um, gift card to Amazon gifts <laughs> and I've uh, seen it. payments you know saying mm-hmm. and I've gone back in some cases to intercept actually on intercept people in an area verify that they're a um, uh, registered voter and say, if you'll take two minutes to fill out this questionnaire, I'll pay you $10. And you show them the money right then and there. Boom. Now we're picking up more people who would not talk to a pollster on the phone. But I use a combination, for the most part, of, of uh, standard phones, cell phones, and online recruits. Interesting. Does that, do, um, is there any work to be done in social media with polling? Oh, yes. Yes. I think I've seen things. I mean, haven't you ever seen things that say, do you believe in the Second Amendment? Click here. And then, I have, but I don't think they're real. That's why I, I never I've participated clicked on them, in them. And it's, it's, it's clickbait for sure. But it goes to usually these long questionnaires, which when I see that it's that, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm done with this. But I never invest in it. But there's a series of questions that it goes down and it's asking me. And I'm assuming somebody's taking that data. I assume that they're going to want my information, so I just don't do it. But Yeah, and, and that's the kind of competition we have to worry about. What it amounts to is this, this is a situation where the published pollsters have a little bit of an advantage because if they can say, I'm from Gallup poll, that carries a certain credibility. Rasmussen has a certain credibility. Pew Research has certain credibility. But most polling is done by private firms and the results are never made public. Mm. They are done for a candidate or for a company that needs some marketing strategies. And, uh, and so you, you, you have to convince them other ways that you are legitimate. And that's why we were constantly trying to say, this is a legitimate poll, it's anonymous, nobody's gonna know. It won't be shared with uh, anybody. Your particular answers will not be shared, but will be gathered together with those of other people. You give them all those options, and we are. We keep it all anonymous. Uh, somebody says, well, I want to know what, uh, I understand you interviewed Mr. Jones. I'd like to know. I said, I won't give it to you. <laughs> what? I'll give you the aggregate percentages, but I'm not going to tell you what Mr. Jones said. The exit polls have become something that is... I think that's what confused all of us with the uh, with the Clinton uh, Trump election is those exit polls. Who's who's doing those exit polls? Because they're they're wrong so much of the time. An exit poll, and usually newspapers, TV stations will have that. And the person, if you vote in person now, it's you know so much yeah. as mail in. Right. But at the time, the person comes out of the election mm-hmm. um, place. The polling place, yeah. Yeah, where he's uh, cast his vote. The rules are you cannot have anybody intercept him for 50 feet or whatever it is. So the pollster is sitting at the proper distance away from the exit of the polling place, ready for a poll. If the person wants to be interviewed, I voted for Clinton and I'm happy and proud about it, I'll tell this guy. But if they voted for Trump, they see it's a pollster, I'll walk in a different direction. That's, that's why the exit polls were so sure that Hillary Clinton was going to win. Yeah. Interesting. So all of, in all of your years that you've been doing these focus groups, because I think that's fascinating. The focus oh, yeah. groups would be fascinating. Do you have any stories that are, you know, 
kind of comical or surprising or that would be interesting to us? Oh, boy, do I have stories. There was a, I was doing work for a U.S. Senate candidate in Colorado, and we were in Denver. And I'd done a couple of nights worth of focus groups for him. And he said, for tonight's focus groups, because you usually do two in an evening, each of them two hours long, uh, just start it off in general. Let's see where they take it, what they decide to talk about. How many people are in a focus group normally? Usually eight to ten, maybe as many as twelve. Mm-hmm. Is there a big? Is it a diverse group or? So we try to make it that way, okay. Uh, so that you've got a good age diversity, and you've got you know half men, half women, all those kinds of things, and you're 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 bringing people together. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And so to start it off, I go around the room and I have people introduce themselves, just quickly who they are. And I remember this this time, so I'm here in Colorado talking about U.S. Senate issues from a U.S. Senate candidate, and I get around to the room, and I'm going from my left to the right, the guy sitting right to my right, the last person to introduce himself, introduced himself as Elmer, so it's an old-fashioned name. Yeah. He was a truck driver. He'd been in Colorado for three years, moved from Arkansas. He had bad teeth work, dental (laughs) work. He had a rooster tail haircut, and he had a package of cigarettes rolled up in a yellow T-shirt sleeve. Elmer. I mean, if you wanted to stereotype, I mean, hick, rube, (laughs) deplorable in Hillary's terms, this was Elmer. On top of it, he was shy. So as I opened it up, for uh, discussion, we talked for about 45 minutes, and it soon became apparent that everybody had talked except Elmer. Okay. So I thought, okay, I'll give Elmer his, I'll give him his moment in the sun, and then we'll get back to the people who have something to say. It's been 25 years, and I can still remember exactly what he said. Elmer, what's your take on what we've been discussing? He says, I have become quite concerned of late. And when he said, of late instead of lately, I thought, oh boy, here comes something. (laughs) I have become quite concerned of late at the ascendancy of single-issue groups in the nation. I fear that if the trend continues, it may well lead to the balkanization of America. This man was intelligent, he was well-read, he was articulate as could be. And once he had the microphone, so to speak, it came out. I mean, was everyone just? Uh, everyone was as was uh, just mouth gaped as you. Mouth open, <laughs> and in fact, from that point on, I didn't run the focus group. Elmer did, because when anybody would say something, they'd look at Elmer to see if he approved. <laughs> Brilliant man, right? But you wouldn't gauge it, you know, from it. So that was that was great. Love it. And there was a time I was doing a focus group for the. NRA in uh, in um, Maryland, uh, and we were just on the other side of the District of Columbia, <clears throat> and so the the group and it was on a gun control issue that was going to be going on on so on the ballot, and so we we were drawing from the white suburbs and of Maryland and and still the the black area of Maryland that was still just a continuation of the northern part of the District of Columbia, sure. okay? Uh-huh. So I had both races and everything else. <clears throat> and as it started to go uh, to unfold, and we were talking about it, then it got more and more heated. <laughs> and they tended to gather, be, uh, choose up, and uh, two spokespeople sort of emerged from the group. Right. One was a lady who was liberal as can be and just pro-gun control right down the line. And the person in favor of guns, uh, you know, gun ownership and the, the Second Amendment, was a black guy. Well, this just discombobulated this liberal white. Oh, right. She just couldn't figure this out. <laughs> and she finally, finally she just stood up and says, I disagree with you. You are a disgrace to your race. The most racist oh. comment. She pointed at this guy. You are a disgrace to your race. You should be on our side what? for gun control. 
And this guy, just cool, calm as can be, I just loved him. He says, lady, if you lived in my hood, you'd be packing heat too. Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful. She walked out, wouldn't even allow me to pay her. Really? <laughs> yeah, she, she left the focus group. Oh. And I said, well, okay, we've got a good discussion going here. Let's keep going. Yeah. And that's what you have to do. As a focus group moderator, people will look to me for clues. I try not to give them any clues. I just you know, call on different people. What's your take on it? He said this. What do you think? You know, And, and you get a discussion going there. because That I'm, takes a lot of self-control on your part. Yes, it does. To not be the voice that sways them one way or the other. One of the things that I have a real pet peeve of that's happening now is that there's more of a narrative instead of ever discussions, right? We don't have people, people want to tell you their opinion and they want you to agree with them. Right. Nobody wants to be disagreed with. I mean, social media, the media in general, mainstream media, you name it, everybody wants to be agreed with. Schools in general, elementary schools we've got teachers voicing opinions and taking a stand politically to me there's no place for that type of thing and what it to me has done it's polarized us i feel like that's the the, one of the reasons we are so far to one extreme or the other is because you have to take a stand somewhere no one wants you to be in the middle that's that's the polarization i'm talking about yeah that's yeah that's happening more and more i predict it will continue to happen I believe I believe it will. I, I think that we're on a, we're on this wheel that we can't get off right now. Yeah, and and it actually will show up as well, unless the pollster really watches himself. He has a client, and I can I can read some of these questionnaires that the pollsters put out there, and I can just tell you what side they're on, because they slant it just a little bit. There was one poll. That, that was uh, put out, you know, that showed uh, very, very favorable for gay marriage. And I said, show me exactly what they asked in the order in which they asked it. The very first question was, what is your gender? Male, female, other. And the very fact that they gave them an other at the beginning sensitized people. So if people were more favorable towards the gay and lesbian, the LGBT community, they would continue to be interviewed. Those who are saying, wait a minute, you know. And number one, it's Survey Research 101. You don't begin with your demographics. Your demographic questions come at the end. Interesting. And the very fact that this lady who was in charge of this poll started off with a, a question that indicated who's behind it, that just skewed her sample. She got people... She was, it was not a clean sample of the population she was trying to. But those are, those are results that are being used regularly from polls that have skewed samples. I don't know how often that occurs. It occurred there, and it led to some newspaper articles, and I wrote in on one of them. Did you? Yes. Like I had, what, what did you was, say? I've seen was, the poll. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I, I wrote, it wasn't published, but I wrote to the person who brought it to my attention. I just said, there's not a. Uh, a professional pollster in America who would defend that question as being the first one to be asked and the way it was asked. Do you think that sometimes, or maybe it's what's going on in America, that instead of really trying to find out really what's going on, they're trying to justify or they're trying to legitimize what they want to happen? That's right. I mean, either side, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you for gay marriage or not, if you don't get the right sample, if you don't get a clean sample, we're not learning anything. Exactly right. We can't move forward if we don't know the truth. And that's what I, uh, a well-written questionnaire, you read it, you will not be able to tell which side the client is on. That's what I try to do. Take my name off of it because I'm associated with the conservative Republican side. Take my name off it, show my questionnaire to anybody and I predict, I think, nine times out of ten, they won't know which, who, who might be paying for that poll. That's what I want. I want those perfectly neutral questions that get at what people really think without leading them 
uh, to uh, my preferred answer. Of course, I'd like to have preferred answers, and, you know, that are show that my clients, you know, favorable, et cetera, et cetera. But even more important, I got to find out where that, where he thinks my my client, my candidate, is wrong. And what he fears, if if my candidate wins elections, right. then I can work on something. Then I, people ask. I got to tell you a story. I was I was dating a girl one time before I met Jan. And what? There was a girl before Jan. <laughs> Don't tell Jan. Don't tell Jan. <laughs> well, when you're 31 before you get married, there were you know there I, might have been a few girls. There oh, might so have been you a were, few you girls. You were later in life that you got married. Well, you were getting your doctorate. I mean, yeah. you were becoming a doctor. So. Yep. You didn't have time for that. Yeah, have to. That's right. Okay. But anyway, uh, her parents came down to visit her one time, and I want to make a good impression, you know. And so I said um, to her dad, as we got you know conversing, I, I opened up the conversation. I said, "Well, your your daughter tells me you're in the cattle business." And he looked at me and he says, "My daughter is wrong." And I'm thinking, oh no, I've got my girlfriends mixed up. <laughs> Obviously, there's more than one. Yeah, okay. I'm in the grass business. A cow is just something we hang it on to get a better price. Oh. And that stuck with me. Mm. What business am I really in? I mean, people who look at this man who's very successful in the cattle business, but he says, saw himself as the grass business and this is a way to step up and get more money for it so i asked myself am i in the public opinion research business no that's just a tool i'm in the strategy business i'm in the mm -hmm. persuasion business and it, this is just a, like i say it's a tool to help me achieve a strategy or persuasion goal you haven't always been in the political arena, right? You've done things other than politics as far as surveying and polling. Oh, I've, yeah, I'm both on the political side and the marketing side. And so I've done work for Mayo Clinic and American Airlines and State Farm Insurance and uh, transportation agencies and a lot of other things that have nothing to do with politics. And it comes right back down to it. The most fascinating study, for me at least, is the human mind. Absolutely. The human behavior, what happens. And uh, I, I, public opinion research really is just, if I had to do it again, I would do it again. It's that way. Oh, in fact, one time Jan and I were at a, at a social of some sort meeting new people, and um, a lady asked me, oh, well, what's, uh, what's your profession? What's your occupation? And I said, uh, I'm a pollster. And she says, oh, that's great. I have this green sofa that I need to have recovered. <laughs> <laughs> well. So from that point on, I always make it a point to I put the adjective in there. <laughs> I am a political pollster. I'm a public opinion research pollster. So funny. Yeah. By looking at human nature, I was a sociology major and oh. people laughed at me because I went into that because I really am interested in human beings. I love the idea of the, really the art form of studying humans and really understanding why they tick, why they do certain things based on where they live, how much money they make, the color of their skin, their religious background, all of those things. You've utilized this in a way that is next level, right? You've you've turned it into a business and you've seen things based on all of the things that you've seen and experienced and you are you are can I can I tell everybody your age is that is that inappropriate here no I'm I'm 80 years of age and I don't feel a day over 90 <laughs> I wanted to tell the people that because you've seen a lot yeah. you've been around a lot and first of all I say he's 80 he looks phenomenal and as yeah. you can tell he is sharp as sharpest attack, attack mm -hmm. and he is, you know, every bit is, he's younger and more spry than a lot of 50 year olds for sure. Do you have a positive outlook? Do you have a, are you hopeful for the future? Because I think sometimes we as humans, I'm watching the news and I get kind of depressed. I, I look at human beings and I, I'm on social media or I'm listening to people talk on, this, on you know, talk radio and it's kind of negative. And some of my feeling is, Ugh. well, 
fear like like yeah, Gary I, was I'm saying. a little I'm a little disappointed. I have some fear. I'm frustrated. What is your outlook on all of this? You've seen a lot and you've seen it ebb and flow in different ways. The bell curve has changed. So what do you what do you think is our future here? I am a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist. I think our future is bright and I think um, we're going to face some trials but that's the whole thing of opposition sure. without opposition you don't make any progress uh, i grew up in middle of utah and so i know what black ice is i know what's driving on black ice that people here who are born and raised in right me yeah but <laughs> i've heard of black ice i've just heard never of black experienced ice. it that's it if you don't have friction you don't move forward mm. On black ice, those tires can spin and spin and spin, but that vehicle will not go forward. We need something to push against in order to accomplish something. I love Oppos that. Opposition in all things is necessary for progress in life. So what's going to happen? Yeah, we have setbacks hitting us. Afghanistan and our allies, we're not a trusted nation very much by a lot of other uh, people who look to us for you know, support on things. The economy, we're going to be facing, you just can't go $30 trillion in debt and not have an impact. <laughs> no. And all of these things, you, you put it together, we're going to wrestle with it and we're going to be disappointed, uh, frustrated, but we're going to win enough little battles that it's going to feed an overall optimism. That's, you know, I, I love that viewpoint because we are a nation and a society and this new generation and even my generation are people who don't want opposition that's right we want instant gratification we want things fixed quickly we don't want discomfort that's right we don't like it so when all of this comes it is fear it's not just like oh this is an opportunity and and i forget that our country was based on opposition the only reason we're here that's right is because we didn't like what was going on. Exactly right. We had to overthrow a monarchy. Why America still pays so much attention to the royal family and <laughs> United Kingdom that they can pay attention to what they want. There was a cartoon, and Peanuts cartoon one time. I clipped it out years ago. But uh, Linus says, uh, comes in and says to, to uh, his little sister, uh, I believe in the work ethic. She looks at him and says, I believe in the allowance ethic. <laughs> <laughs> Too much, we're, we're, but what's going to happen? There were a lot of, the younger generation in any society has always been, well, you don't know enough about life. Yeah. And then they find out about life. And I, I gotta tell you, I tip my hat to the silent generation that preceded me, my parents. They were teenagers during the Depression. Then came World War II. My dad was on Iwo Jima as my mom was raising me and my oldest sister. And work ethic, my goodness, yes, they had it. Mm -hmm. And I think as we grow older, we get more of a, an understanding. So yeah, there's a lot of kids sitting on the sofa, you know, and cashing in an unemployment check. They'll wise up. They're going to hit some bumps, and they're going to overcome them, and that's how they make progress. So I, overall, I'm an optimist for, her, for the future. We have um, one thing that we ask our guests at the end of our podcast, mm -hmm. and that is to give us a takeaway gift or a tag, something that we can leave with the audience. Do you have a takeaway gift for us? Yes, I do. What, what is it? We never <laughs> hear what it is. so we, we, We're always surprised. We're always surprised. Here is the, the, the takeaway I would say. I mentioned earlier that all of us are in the persuasion business of one sort or another. You're either trying to persuade your children to do what's right or you're trying to persuade a customer to buy your product or trying to persuade a voter to vote for you. We are all in the persuasion business. Remember this, there is no persuasion without contrast. Mm. There is no conversion, sales, victory at the voting booth without comparisons. Don't be afraid to show a contrast 
between what you believe versus what your competitor believes. Don't be afraid of drawing comparisons, whether it's uh, religious comparisons, political comparisons, economic, financial, business comparisons. No persuasion without contrast. I love it. Dr. Gary Lawrence, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on Two Average Girls. We're just, what an honor to have you on. We're so glad to have you in. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for sharing that with us. We really appreciate it. I'm Ann Police. And I'm Denise Cooper. This has been Two Average Girls. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and follow. Also, you can find us on Instagram at Two Average Girls Podcast, as well as Facebook, Two Average Girls Podcast. Go ahead and log on and give us a like. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. I'm